That's good. Well, here we go, and welcome to the History on the Rocks podcast. This is your host, Cody. I am so excited to bring you this premiere episode about a man named George, who you might have heard of before, who had a profitable business venture in selling none other than alcohol. I know you're a little surprised. But first, what am I drinking? I am drinking local. Out here in DeKalb, Illinois, we have a great distillery called Whiskey Acres. It's about an hour outside of Chicago, but definitely worth the trip if you're in the area looking for something fun to do. Any season, they are open year-round. They have a great poorhouse where you can be inside when it's cold out, and they have live bands. They have a full bar of their product. They don't just make whiskey. They have vodka as well and a whole menu of fantastic cocktails. In the summer, I've got a buddy who will be on this podcast at some point who plays in a band, and they play outside. You can enjoy the weather, have a nice cocktail, just relax in the sun. It's fantastic. So, again, if you ever get the chance and you're in the Chicago area, DeKalb, Illinois, Whiskey Acres, definitely worth the trip. And like I said, I'll be bringing on some friends and family to this podcast, but I figured this first episode I would do by myself and bring you the story of a man named George who had a profitable business venture selling alcohol. Well, this man named George is no other than George Washington. And what do we know about George Washington? You might be thinking statesman, founding father, great general, obviously first president of the United States. But did you know that George Washington had his own distillery at his estate at Mount Vernon. Between 1770 and 1771, just five years before the Declaration of Independence is signed, George Washington constructed the grist mill on his Dogrun farm. Now, a grist mill grinds grain into flour. The name refers to the grinding equipment as well as the building. Grist mills, powered by water wheels, have been around for many centuries, some as early as 19 BC. In 1791, Washington upgraded his gristmill to include the automated function of what is called the Evans system. He was the first to install it in the United States. The Evans system was designed by Oliver Evans, whose patent went through the United States Patent Office during Washington's presidency. Washington asked Oliver Evans to come personally to install his system. However, Oliver couldn't get away from business long enough to do the project. Instead, he sent his two brothers to Mount Vernon to install it for him. So why exactly is this system so amazing? First of all, it's completely automated and relies on no manual labor. This is the late 1700s, not the late 1800s where industry and inventions are booming. This is still a time where big machines don't really exist, especially automated machines. Secondly, there's a mechanism called the hopper boy that helps clean and sort the mill grains, again, automatically. Now, the system has a 16-foot powered wheel, and it needs plenty of water to keep its rotations going for the mill to function properly. So, Washington had to come up with a plan. Unfortunately, he did own slaves, and his enslaved workers constructed a mill dam and a pond, and then they dug an earthen canal to bring enough water down to the mill. This is truly an engineering feat for its time. 
So you have to understand, the gristmill puts out cornmeal, flour, and grains. The cornmeal was actually used by the Mount Vernon estate to feed both the slaves and the livestock. So Washington had to find an abundance of his corn for the spirits from outside sources. The mill was operated by hired skilled millers as well as two enslaved millers named Forrester and Ben. Now this is interesting because many people think that slaves were used only in the fields for long hours. However, Washington utilized his slaves at Mount Vernon for whatever they were skilled at. Now I'm not defending slavery or George Washington for having slaves. I think it's fairly obvious that the institution of slavery is immoral and wrong. However, I thought it was interesting that as a fact, Washington used less physical violence than most southern slave owners and found it counterproductive. Now, William Roberts was Washington's top miller and millwright, which is a very important title at the time. A millwright is a skilled tradesperson who installs, dismantles, maintains, repairs, reassembles, and moves the machinery. This is important because Washington never had to pay for maintenance of the mill. However, Washington had to fire Roberts in 1785 because of none other than his drinking problem. Whatever leftover wheat and corn the mill made was sold in nearby markets like Alexandria and Fredericksburg, Virginia, and also as far away as Britain, Portugal, and Jamaica. Washington also allowed his neighbors to use the mill for an exchange of one-eighth of their grain as a toll, or tax. The gristmill was torn down in 1850 and rebuilt later by the Commonwealth of Virginia in 1932. Today, it is still the only functioning Evans System gristmill in the United States. Now let's talk about the distillery. Washington was president from 1789 to 1797. After he had left politics, he was at the point of his life where he wanted to simplify his farming operations and reduce expansive land holdings at Mount Vernon. He was intrigued by the popularity of whiskey at the time and the kind of profit that the distillery could make for extra income. Alcohol throughout the 1700s was very popular. From wine to rum to whiskey, it was in high demand. Washington believed in alcohol in moderation, not constantly getting drunk or drinking, but enjoying it socially. He mostly drank sweet wines like port and Madeira, rum punch, porter, and whiskey. Before the American Revolution, rum was the most popular drink in the colonies. After the Revolution, whiskey became more popular because rum was more expensive and tedious to make. Molasses, what you need to make rum, had to come from the British West Indies, and the process to make it took way longer. Whiskey, on the other hand, was a simpler process, and corn and wheat were readily available in the newly established states. Washington's Scottish farm manager at Mount Vernon insisted that the former president start to distill whiskey on a commercial scale. It would become the largest distillery in the nation by 1799. The distillery was made up of five copper pipe stills that ran year-round. The average distiller at the time ran one or two stills for only about a month. Washington Still produced 11,000 gallons a year as opposed to the average distillery's 650 gallons. The distillery's five stills held a total of 616 gallons. It had 50 mash tubs, in which those who did the research on the distillery say only half were used to mash or cook the grain, which at the time, the fermenting and cooking grain process was done together rather than separately as it is today. These tubs were made of 120-gallon barrels. The boiler that produced the hot water held 200 gallons. Now, 
if you think about these statistics, this is a very large operation for the late 1700s. The distillery mostly produced whiskey, however, it did occasionally produce flavored brandy and vinegar. The slop from the distillery was used to feed around 150 pigs at Mount Vernon and also carted to nearby farms to feed his neighbor's pigs. I guess you could call it modern-day recycling. So now that Washington had a commercial distillery, how did he sell the finished product? Well, Washington's whiskey was not bottled, aged, or branded like today's whiskey is. He sold the whiskey in 30-gallon uncharred barrels in nearby Alexandria and to his neighbors. The barrels were also sold in stores in Richmond, Virginia. Washington's whiskey was sold for 50 cents per gallon for the common whiskey, which is $12.47 adjusted to 2024 inflation, and $1 per gallon for rectified and fourth distilled whiskey, which is about $24.94 in 2024. The distillery was one of the most successful economic components of Mount Vernon. In 1799, Washington brought in roughly $7,500 in profit, which if we adjust that to 2024, is around $251,426. Now, anyone listening to this podcast who knows me knows I'm going to make a joke that politicians don't actually pay their taxes. However, back then, Washington paid a tax for his whiskey. In 1798, it came out to $323 on 616 gallons produced for that year. I bring up the whiskey tax because this was enacted during Washington's presidency. During his presidency, quote-unquote Westerners, which are the people living in the western parts of the states, which are mostly rural, protested the tax as unfair on their growing source of income. Not everyone had a fancy distillery, but made small batches of alcohol. Washington actually marched 12,950 troops up to western Pennsylvania to stop the Whiskey Rebellion and restore order to the federal government's right to tax the alcohol. So, the former president lived up to his civic duty of paying his whiskey tax and didn't use any of his former power to get around it. That's kind of admirable. Now, when you visit the distillery today, unfortunately, it's not going to be the original building. After Washington passed, the distillery was inherited by his nephew, Lawrence Lewis. A fire in 1814 destroyed the distillery completely and the stones from its destruction were later used in construction projects around the area. The Commonwealth of Virginia purchased the property and rebuilt the mill and mill cottage. They deemed the property a state park until 1997. The Mount Vernon Ladies Association, who still owns the property today, entered an agreement to manage and restore the park in 1995. Between 1999 and 2006, an archaeological dig was done on the site of the distillery in which archaeologists found the original location of the five stills, the boiler, underground drains, the boundary where the wall stood between the office and storeroom, as well as many objects like fragments of the original stills, teacups, broken plates, drinking glasses, and buttons. Reconstruction of the distillery then began in 2005. It was completed in 2007. It is built as close as possible to the original building. However, some exceptions had to be made in order to align with modern-day building code and safety regulations. For example, another 15 feet was added to the building to accommodate a large staircase and an elevator for tourists visiting the distillery. 
Today, you can still visit and see this remarkable recreation as well as purchase the whiskeys that are still produced there. If you're in Virginia, the D.C. area, or select military bases, you are lucky enough to be able to buy these spirits online. The rest of us, however, are going to have to take a trip to visit the distillery in person at Mount Vernon. However, this historic relic of a liquid goes for the following prices. The unaged rye whiskey, $98 a bottle. The straight rye aged whiskey, $188 a bottle. And the rye premium aged whiskey, $225 per bottle. Now, personally, I have visited D.C., but I've never been to Mount Vernon. And I would love to visit there just to get my hands on one of these bottles and try this whiskey. The George Washington's Rye Whiskey is the official state spirit of the Commonwealth of Virginia and received a silver medal at the 2019 American Craft Spirits Association Awards, a top award among unaged whiskeys nationwide. For more information, go to www.mountvernon.org, which is still run by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Now, for a history buff like me, this would be an awesome vacation. I would love to get my hands on one of these bottles and try this whiskey that is produced in such a original way from the late 1700s. Thank you all so much for your support and joining me on the premiere episode of the History on the Rocks podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information about the United States first president, George Washington, and his distillery at his estate at Mount Vernon. So join me next Thursday for episode two. My wife, Audrey, is going to join me on the podcast, and we'll be talking about common phrases that people use today and their historical backgrounds. This is going to be part one of a three-part series we're going to spread out through season one. Now, there's a lot of phrases. It should be a fun time. Some are morbid. Some are funny. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you next week. Cheers.